Good evening. We're <laughs> glad, glad you came back this evening. If you did not get a handout, I've replenished them. I noticed we ran out, which means some of you didn't bring your handout back from last week because we're on part two tonight. Should have had just enough the way I calculated. Or maybe some extra people came tonight that I didn't plan on. But anyhow, there's some more back there. And the good part of me going in and making some more copies was that I happened to be in the copy room when Charles got up here and started the song service. And all of a sudden I was blasted with I'm in the glory land way from the speaker right over my head. And uh, I reinforced the thought that uh, we ought to be a singing people. Uh, It sounded good coming from the other room. And if I was a visitor, uh, that would have impressed me that you're in the glory land way and you actually sounded like you meant it. So I was impressed. And our songs reinforced all of the true doctrines that I've been teaching the last few weeks. You'll notice there is an evergreen tree in heaven, so some of you are a little worried about that physical thing I was talking about. It's right there in that song. There is an evergreen tree there. I think there might be more than one myself, but it's in the song. All right, some of you had a hard afternoon, didn't you? You're tired, worn out. I don't know what else to do here. Well, maybe it's the topic. You're just not too fired up about hearing about hell, evidently. That's our topic. Uh, (laughs) Let's just go ahead and get through it as quick as we can then. Uh, We talked about... (laughs) We started last week. uh, We're working on the end times and the afterlife. We've gone through... A number of different topics, and we're finally to the last one, uh, which if you just get a new handout, first thing you do is change that 2F there by hell, change that to 2G. Uh, I missed that. That's a typo. We are on the last uh, topic in this big topic of the end times and afterlife. And next week, my plan is to summarize it all, go back through and condense it into one story of what the afterlife is going to be like from the loosing of Satan all the way to our entering heaven and hell. All right, topic of hell. We looked at the reality of hell, how the Bible talks specifically about it. We talked about how some people deny it uh, for various reasons. Some secularists don't believe in any afterlife, so they don't talk about it. And some universalists have decided that somehow everybody's going to be saved. Uh, So you don't have to worry about hell if God is finally going to save everybody. Uh, The Universalist Church teaches that, and a lot of other folks uh, are starting to kind of go that direction, uh, which seems reasonable in the spirit of the times uh, when we are much more... Uh, tolerant and everybody's okay and everything's all right and God is totally a loving God and all of that, naturally, society would move toward a universalist viewpoint. Then we finished by talking about the nature of hell, and all we looked at was the images in the Bible. 
Uh, we saw what the Bible specifically talks about when Jesus and others were talking about uh, the state of hell, the uh, place where the wicked will abide eternally, and uh, some pretty bad pictures there that we looked at last week. All right, now we're on the second page, and our question is, which we introduced last time, are those images literal or are they figurative? Is hell really going to be a place of fire and darkness and maggots and uh, all the things that we read as the images in the Bible? Or are those just pictures to, to uh, try to describe how bad it's really going to be? Literal or figurative? Uh, some people believe, take a literal view, it's really going to be like that. Uh, we're going to have physical bodies, so physical pain is going to be part of it. Uh, some people, however, think, no, that just, that just can't be literal. It's got to be uh, figurative, metaphorical somehow. And there's some reasons to think that. Uh, for instance, fire and darkness, I mentioned that last time. Uh, how do you have total darkness, thick darkness, black darkness of constant fire? Uh, I realize God can make a fire that doesn't give off light uh, if he wants to, but those two things don't seem to go together very well. Uh, some people argue that, well, we're going to be spirit beings. Uh, it's the spirit world. We're going to be spirit beings. So how does physical uh, torment uh, fit in with that? Well, we are going to have bodies, uh, resurrection body. so I think it fits in just fine. It will be a different kind of physical body, but it will be a physical body. Uh, some people have tried to go a little step further and say, well, here's what those things mean. If they're figurative, here's what they're picturing. Uh, and as with anything in the Bible, when you start trying to figure out the, the picture, unless Jesus himself said, this is this, uh, you can get all kinds of answers. Uh, but some folks have said, the worm that never dies, uh, that's the sinner's conscience, continually gnawing at him, continually reminding him that he made a bad decision. Uh, it's not a physical worm or maggot gnawing on him, but it's his conscience uh, that's nagging and gnawing at him is one metaphor explanation. Uh, some people have said the fire isn't a literal fire, but it's a burning in the heart for God. The, the worst part is the absence from God. And when you are finally in that condition, you realize what you've given up, what you've turned down, and you have this horrible uh, burning, this, this fire that you would like to be with God. Uh, one attractive view, I called it, uh, because it kind of satisfies everything, uh, that, that view is that the only thing literal in all those pictures that we talked about is that it is going to be a separation from the Father. Uh, and the Son and the Spirit, for that matter, uh, for all eternity. And all the other pictures, uh, fire and worms and all of that, are just ways of emphasizing that it's going to be bad. Uh, they aren't really going to be there. It's just a, a way to explain suffering and, and how bad it's going to be to be separated from God. Uh, so that, like I said, is a little more attractive to us for some reason. Although, 
I think it's going to be, that's going to be the worst part anyway, uh, no matter whether it's literal or figurative. And that's what I finished with the, the answer there, is I can't tell you whether it's literal or figurative, but it's going to be a place of suffering. I think that much is dead solid perfect. Uh, it's going to be a place of suffering. Uh, whether Jesus and all the others were using some figurative language to explain what we say about heaven. We say it's not going to really be gold and jewels perhaps, but that's the best way he could explain glory. Uh, so perhaps that's true. Uh, but the Bible says some other things that don't rely on it being literal fire and literal worms and all that. Uh, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means people are hurting. That means that there is suffering going on. Uh, conscious suffering. If you're gnashing your teeth, you know how bad you're hurting. You know how much you are suffering. Um, Matthew 10.28 says that uh, Jesus is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Both body and soul. So physical suffering is possible, I think. Quite Quite reasonable if we consider that we're going to have a resurrection body. So it's going to be a place of suffering. Uh, how and why, I, I can't make a call on that. Uh, seems to me it would be more figurative. Uh, the separation from God, I think, is going to be the horrible part. Uh, that was the horrible part on the cross, the separation from God, not the the physical pain and the, the, the beatings and all of that, although they were bad, uh, that wasn't the worst part. The separation from God was the worst part. Uh, some people, men, have tried to picture it in other ways, uh, use other figurative language to try to explain it. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote some about hell, not a whole lot, but in The Great Divorce one of his books, he wrote some about it. And here's how he described hell. Um, and he leaned toward the separation from God part is going to be the bad part. Uh, he, he called hell the gray town in perpetual twilight with its constant hope of morning, which never arrives. It's a place where it's gray all the time and you hope the sun's going to come up. You hope there's going to be a morning, but it never comes. And he said, in it are the cold and gloom, the lonely, lonely streets, where even the people live millions of miles from each other. Another picture that some man wrote down uh, to try to emphasize the, the loneliness and the separation from God and and. You take away God and you have no reason for relationships and all of that, so maybe that's a pretty good picture. Don't know what it'll be like. Uh, some of you probably can barely remember. Uh, I can barely remember reading it a little bit. Uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, which I, I didn't remember all this. I had to go back and look it up and kind of remind myself of what he wrote about, but uh, in the 14th century, an uh, Italian guy named Dante uh, wrote three parts to his book, actually, The Divine Comedy, 
Uh, he wrote one about the inferno, and then one about the purgatory, and then one about paradise. And the one about inferno describes his impression of what hell will be like. And in his picture, uh, there are nine circles of hell, if you remember that. And there are a lot of things in his book that, are, that have become famous and kind of catchphrases. Uh, but his nine circles of hell uh, start with the, the best people in hell, if you can kind of get your mind around that, uh, on down to the worst. Uh, and in the ninth circle, finally, you finally get down to Satan and the folks that are closest to him. Uh, uh, over the gate, and I just jotted down some stuff that I looked up here. Uh, over the gate, as you enter hell, is the famous phrase, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Uh, we see that, use that today sometimes and see it other places, but that's what Dante coined as the, the entrance to hell. Uh, kind of interesting how he thought through it. Of course, he was in the Middle Ages there, the Roman Catholic Church, and all of that greatly influenced what he believed and thought. Uh, so he's got a vestibule to hell, an area before you go into hell. And in that place are the uncommitted, the people who did neither good nor evil. They just lived life. They just kind of got, got through life. Uh, they were self-interested. They, they weren't interested in uh, doing much else. And they're stuck in the vestibule on the shores of the river and don't go over. They're just stuck there eternally. And wasps and maggots chase them all the time. Uh, it's a pretty yucky book uh, if you read The Inferno. He's got some pretty bad punishments in the nine, nine circles. Uh, but that's the uncommitted. Uh, they don't get sent to hell, but they don't go to a very pleasant place either. And uh, I, the reason I'm spending some time on this is because man worries about all that stuff. All the distinctions and the levels. Well, what about somebody that was uncommitted? You know, he wasn't uh, wasn't really a good man. He didn't do great good things, but he wasn't evil either. So, what's going to happen to him? And we try to figure all that out. And that's where a lot of the uh, theory or teachings of the Catholic Church came from. Uh, that's where purgatory came from. It's not in the Bible, but it, it, it answers a question that a lot of people have. Well, how about this kind of person? Well, okay, let's come up with a place for him. Uh, anyhow, that's the vestibule. Um, then the entrance, you get go through the entrance into hell, and hell is only for the unrepentant. The people that sinned and did things wrong and didn't ever repent of it. If you prayed and repented and were sorry some, you go to purgatory. So that's a different place according to Dante. Uh, keep reminding, I need to say this every once in a while on the tape, I'm not teaching Bible here. <laughs> I'm telling you about Dante's uh, book, fiction book by the way. Anyhow, then there's the nine levels of hell and different punishments in each level. Uh, the first one is limbo, and that's for 
virtuous non-Christians. Good people, but they were never baptized. Pretty good people, but they never uh, uh, responded to God. So they're in there in limbo, and the punishment there is bad, but it's not horrible, horrible. Second level is lust. And a lot of these go along with the seven deadly sins that were taught back there, but there's some variations. Second level is lust. And the punishment there, it's kind of interesting, is a constant storm. Winds constantly blowing different directions. Uh, A constant storm where there is no rest. Uh, Won't bother us Kansans quite as much as it bothers some of those other folks, because we're kind of prepared for that. Uh, anyhow, that's where the lust people go that gave into their appetite, and that was their main thing in life. Gluttony was a lower level of hell, and in there, the people lie in a, it, a constantly icy rain, and it's a foul rain. There's pollution in it and all that, and they lie in the slush from that continually. Uh, greed, fourth level of Dante's Inferno, uh, people that were interested in material goods. And part of the interest of his book is how he defines some of these sins, uh, like for material goods and greed, he includes both the miser who hoarded it and the, the prodigal who squandered it. So sometimes we just think of greed as somebody that... that wants it all and all that. He puts the whole gamut in there. Uh, And the people in that fourth level, they push great weights around. They have these weights that they have to push back and forth, and they're constantly working against each other. And uh, You'd have to read the whole book to get his connection. Most of them are connected to the sins. In fact, all of them are connected to the sins. Fifth level is anger. The people continually fight. Uh, and they're in the river sticks, so they're fighting in the water, and a lot of them have slipped under the water and exist in this semi-drowned state, uh, but the rest of them fight continually. And number six is heresy. Uh, the uh, people that taught heretical kind of things. Uh, seven is violence, and he divides that into three different levels. Uh, violence against people and property, violence, uh, suicides, and people that wasted their uh, money and their life that way, and then violence against God, blasphemy, and violence against nature, sodomites. And their punishments are all different as you go through those uh, three things. The first level... They live in a river of boiling blood and fire. Uh, the last ones live in a desert of flaming sand. The sand is on fire, and fiery sand keeps falling from the sky. Number eight, I know you're ready to get through this. Uh, number eight uh, is fraud, and he's got ten ditches in fraud that they live in, and uh, different levels of fraud. He goes into it in great detail. Uh, by the way, politicians are in Ditch 5, according to Dante, in case you wondered where they're in. That's the eighth circle, by the way. Uh, and the ninth circle is treachery, uh, people that 
consciously uh, are traitors and betray other people, uh, and they live in an icy lake, and they're frozen up to different levels depending on how treacherous they were, and out in the middle of the frozen lake uh, is Satan. So anyhow, that's how Dante took his very figurative uh, description of what hell's like. Uh, the one thing that he's got in there that I probably, uh, that I think the Bible backs up in not a huge way, but I think enough, is that the different levels of punishment. I think there is going to be some way uh, that there's a different level of punishment, and I think that we'll mention that the last thing in the, the handout there. Okay, so those are just some other figurative ideas. Big question is whether it's eternal or not. Well, not the big question. Big question is whether it's figurative or literal, I guess. But another big question is whether it's eternal. And just like some people deny hell, some people deny that it's going to be eternal. Uh, the Bible says it's going to be eternal, everlasting. Daniel twelve two: the wicked are raised up to everlasting contempt. Matthew twenty five forty six: the wicked go from the judgment into eternal punishment. And lots of other passages talk about how hell is eternal, it's everlasting, and the word that's used for eternal punishment or eternal hell is exactly the same word that's used for eternal God, eternal heaven, eternal spirit, all of that. There's no different kind of word used there. But some people, as with anything, just can't quite buy that. Uh, so some folks have come up with a doctrine called annihilation, uh, annihilationism actually, that instead of going to an eternal place of punishment, you're going to be destroyed. Okay? You're going to cease to exist. You're going to be annihilated. You know, most people that buy or teach that doctrine go ahead with an eternal place of reward. They like that okay. But they just can't get their minds wrapped around an eternal place of punishment. It just doesn't seem right uh, for God to punish people forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, so they come up with different levels of annihilationism. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the wicked, uh, they just cease to exist at death. God just annihilates them when they die. So they're gone. And then the uh, Seventh-day Adventists do it after the judgment. Uh, once the judgment is finished and people are sentenced to, or rewarded to heaven and then sentenced to hell, I guess, that's when they cease to exist. And then there are some that have come up with an idea that, well, he says punishment and he talks all about hell and he talks about this fire and all that. So they've got to stay in there a while, but surely they don't have to stay forever. So they, they come up with a doctrine of annihilationism that after God has left them in there for an equitable punishment, they get annihilated. Okay. But God wouldn't leave them in there forever. So he can figure that out, I guess, and know how many days or months or eons or, or whatever he wants to leave them in there. And then whenever they've served their time, if you want to put it that way, uh, then he annihilates them. And a lot of people are teaching that these days, just like a lot of people are teaching universalism. Uh, there are a few reasons 
to believe this. Uh, I don't think there's hardly any reason to believe universalism, although it took a few scriptures out of context and kind of got there. Uh, but this one has got a few more scriptural backgrounds for annihilationism, I think. Uh, and I put two down. First one is, the people that teach this say, well, it really is eternal uh, because it lasts forever. The, the punishment, once you're annihilated, that lasts forever. But it's not an everlasting punishment. Uh, well, I'm, you can say it both ways. It's not an everlasting punishing. That sounds better. It is an everlasting punishment because you're punished and then you're annihilated, so that lasts forever. But it's not an everlasting punishing. You don't spend eternity being punished. Uh, the problem with that is Matthew twenty-five forty-six, And it says our destiny is either eternal life or eternal punishment. And they get around that by saying, well, it is eternal in a way. But Matthew twenty-five forty-six is pretty clear to me. It's eternal punishment or eternal reward. Uh, eternal life or eternal death. Okay. Now, the second part, I think, makes a little more of a case for annihilationism. Much of the biblical language about hell and punishment and all that talks about death and destruction. Uh, it talks about the wicked dying. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now we take that and say, well, that's spiritual death. That means eternal hell, eternal punishment. Well, I'm think a little while. Maybe it does mean really death, annihilation. Revelation 21 says the lake of fire is the second death. When we die physically, we die, our body dies physically. And the second death might be annihilationism, if you read those verses that way. Matthew 10.28 says that God will destroy both body and soul in hell. Philippians 3.19 says their end is destruction. Okay, so the annihilation folks take those passages, and there's others, Talk about death and destruction and say, well, that means he's going to destroy them. Uh, that they're going to die finally, eternally. They're going to be, be gone. That's the argument. Uh, I think the Bible overall says that it's eternal punishment. Uh, and like I've said, everything else in this whole series is whether I'm right or wrong doesn't matter a whole lot. And I hope I never know if I'm right or wrong on this one. Uh, you know, whatever he does is going to be worse than we can imagine. And if our God decides a hundred years in hell is is just punishment, that's fine with me. I'm not going to spend much more time worrying about it, but. I think we do need to know what some some people teach out there since we're studying the subject. Uh, I think personally the Bible says eternal enough and talks about it that way that it's going to be some kind of everlasting punishment. But 
I'll let God handle that any way he wants. Okay, a bigger question than that, really, is what I put down here last, is the nature of God. How do you justify hell with the nature of God? And that's the big question that we get to get out about this topic and probably the one that people ask you if they know you're religious and want to wonder about this stuff. Uh, how can a loving God send people to an eternal hell? Okay. And to me it doesn't matter much difference if you come back and say, well, it's not going to be eternal. You know, he's going to leave them in there 50 years and then wipe them out. That doesn't mollify things much for me, uh, you know, <laughs> it doesn't change the question much, I don't think. Uh, how do you rectify, rationalize, put together a loving God sending people to eternal hell? The Bible says God is love. People know that. They like that verse. First John 4, 8. Uh, universalists use that argument to say, well, he's going to save everybody because he's love. He's a loving God. The annihilationists say, well, he's so loving that he couldn't leave anybody in there for eternity. He's not going to do that since he's a loving God. The, the, the answer to that takes a little more time than three minutes, but since we've studied it a lot already, I know you'll get it. The answer is we've got to know all of God's nature. Okay? Uh, God is love. But God is God, so all of his attributes, all of his characteristics are to the max. They are total, complete, perfect. So he's got total, complete, perfect love. He is love, but he's also totally, perfectly, completely holy and totally, completely, perfect, wrathful and kind and severe He's all of those. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. And that, that we, we aren't that way. We're humans. So we think, well, you can get around that. If you're, you're loving, well, don't punish your kid for that. Okay? Well, that's not just. Because last week, you punished the other kid for it. At least the young one will remind you of that. And we get around that because we're not totally just. God is totally just. He, he, his, uh, when his holiness is offended by sin, he has to dispense justice. He has to be totally righteous, and he will make the totally right decisions every time. But you read through the Bible, and you get these two pictures. I put a few of them down. He's equally a God of holiness and wrath, Hebrews twelve twenty nine. He's both kind and severe, Romans eleven twenty two. Paul said, you better remember the kindness and the severity of God. He's both. He's perfectly both. He's a God who saves and destroys, James 4.12. Okay. And we've been through this in a number of sermon series, so I know you could explain it to 
to anybody pretty well. Because of his love, he wants to save sinners. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He didn't make hell for people. Talk about that in a moment. But he wants to save sinners, but when by their free will, which he gave them because he loved us, by their free will, we rebel against his holiness. We're rejecting his love. And when that happens, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, requires that his wrath be poured out. It's not halfway on anything. It's total, complete, perfect on everything. So when you understand the entire nature of God, all of this fits together perfect. Now, I put a couple of other considerations down there. Let me do those two and then one more. Well, let me do one more first. Uh, Brother Rob, I don't think Rob's here tonight, but he told me last week, because I mentioned this, that how does a loving God send people to hell? He said one answer to that is that he loved his son so much that he gave his son for us. He turned his back on his son for us. That's what a loving God did. So if now he turns and says, okay, forget it. I know you messed up, but I'm going to save you anyway. How about that love for his son? Then that was all negated. That's all wasted. Okay? So, and I thought, well, that's a good way to think about it. He, he is totally love. And he invested that love totally in his son to save us who he totally loves. Okay, the two I put down here. Uh, one is God doesn't send anybody to hell. Uh, especially arbitrarily. Uh, we choose if we want to go there. Okay? He gave us free will. Sin is our choice. We get to decide. We're going to obey him or aren't we? And not, not only that, but since he knew we'd mess up, choose the wrong thing sometimes, he provided a way for us to be saved from sin. He sent Jesus to the cross like we just talked about. If we reject Jesus, if we hear that story and say, no, I don't need him, that's our choice. Okay, I choose to go to the bad place. Okay, but sometimes we don't think it all the way through and say that, but that's what's happening. And God's not sending anybody there uh, arbitrarily. Uh, he and I didn't even put it down here, but hell's not made for us. It's made for the devil and his angels. And then if we choose to go there with them, we can make that choice. Okay, and the last piece, I think there will be degrees of punishment. Uh, when we studied heaven, I told you I thought there would be degrees of reward there somehow, especially at the judgment. Uh, but the Bible does imply that there's going to be degrees of punishment. Uh, the story in Luke 12, 47 48, talks about some getting many lashes and some getting few lashes. Okay, And it's a story about punishing in eternal hell. Uh, Matthew ten fifteen says that the punishment of some will be more bearable for some than others. 
how, I don't know. I don't know if it's nine circles or what. But the Bible does say those few things uh, that lead me to believe that there should be degrees of punishment. And just looking uh, at people, looking at the world, we realize that makes sense. Uh, There ought to be some degrees of punishment uh, because there's all levels of evil. All right. We are finally finished with the end times and the afterlife, uh, except for our summary, which I just think will be kind of interesting to go back through and try to put it all in sequence and order and see what's going to happen when we come to the end times, especially if we happen to be alive when Jesus comes again. Uh, Hopefully he will come quickly and we'll all be alive when he comes again. That would be the best outcome. Uh, unless you are not ready for him to come back. And that's why we always take a little bit of time every time we get together to sing a song of invitation. As we know, there might be somebody here that's not ready. Uh, And we'd like to make that opportunity available for you. We're going to stand and sing this song. If you need to come, come to the front.